If you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25, if you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath your seats or in the seat back in front of you. You can also look it up on your phone. If you don't own a Bible, we think it's an important book, something to add to your personal library. So if you don't own one, just take the Bible that you see in front of you. Take that home. That's a gift from us to you. We'd love to have you uh, take that. We are doing something of a summation tonight of a series that we've just finished. We've been looking at the parables. And so we're going to sort of sum up everything that we've learned. So we've got a lot of work to do, and we're going to get to it. So if you'd pray with me, I'd love to ask God to just be a part of our time tonight. Father God, we thank you for this chance to come in community and consider together what your word says, to sing songs of praise to you, to recognize you as the almighty creator God who's bestowed grace and mercy upon us when we didn't deserve it. So we pray tonight that we'd be opened to your truth, that we would consider well, and that we might learn something about you and ourselves and then go put that into action in the world around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the things that we like to say here at Sedaris is, no matter where you're at in sort of your spiritual life, no matter how you would classify your relationship with God at the current moment, if you come into a place like this or really any place and you honestly consider the truth about who God is and the truth about the gospel, if you're rustling through that and considering that openly and honestly, uh, we believe that's an act of worship. So we just want to say thank you for coming and worshiping with us today. We just pray that... uh, Today would be a time when you would encounter God no matter where you're at and you would, uh, in a sense, wrestle with him and and figure out what it means to live in his world. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, uh, The Natural. It's an older movie. Robert Redford uh, is a young baseball player, not so young actually, but he's the natural, which means what? That he's just good at baseball. He's got that natural swing, and he's a natural. I don't know if you've ever considered yourself to be a natural at anything, or if anyone's ever said to you, wow, you're just a natural. I had that happen to me a few times when I was growing up, and it usually surrounded sports. People would say, oh, wow, you are kind of a natural. Um, So there's a few things that I was that I would maybe consider myself to be a natural at, but there's actually a lot more things that I'm not a natural at. And uh, it's those things that I tend to think about more often than the things I'm natural at. You know, for me, um, I never had the experience of singing in the shower or even singing at church or singing in the elementary school uh, music class and, and a teacher or a friend coming up to me and just being like, wow. You've got an amazing voice. You're just a natural. I never had that happen. I always wanted that to happen. In fact, I had a very good friend named James who himself was something of a natural, and he he was always so kind to me, and I said, James, what do you think about my voice? And he said, Dave, I think you've got got pretty good tone. (laughs) And then he stopped. That's about all he said. He said, well, I'll take that. Um... I've also, uh, you know, my family had this piano 
uh, growing up, and I would go sit in the other room. You'll see a theme here. <laughs> well, not very artistic, but <laughs> in the other room, uh, there was this piano, and I would go in there sometimes, uh, never had a lesson, um, but I'd go in there, and I'd sit down, and I'd start to play. Well, at least I thought I was playing, and I was just banging on the piano, but I convinced myself in my head that it sounded really good. Um, but I'm sure now that it wasn't very natural, and I wasn't very good at it, because my parents never came into the room and said, Wow! A prodigy! Let's get you into a lesson. In fact, I never took a piano lesson, which means that I wasn't any good, so they saw no ability in me. In fact, they'd come into the room and they'd say, Hey, you should call your friends and go you know, set up a baseball game. <laughs> That would be awesome. So I wasn't natural in that either. Uh, also wasn't, you know, a natural at reading. In fact, you know, I was terrified when a teacher would call on me and say, come, um, come, why don't you, Dave, read, read the text for today? And uh, I was not a natural at that at all. And I think it's God's humor that now my job is basically to sit during the week and read a bunch of books and then come up on Sunday and read aloud the text that I've been studying. So God has a sense of humor, and he's put me <laughs> in a place where I'm not very natural. You might have figured that out by now, but um, there's lots of things in life that we're not natural at, and there might be some things that we're natural at. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you have a couple things that you're natural at. Maybe you've had some people say that to you. Man, you're such a natural. Uh, Maybe you have more things that you're naturally good at than me. Or maybe you never had somebody say to you, man, you're just such a natural at that thing. And what I hope by the end of the night that you see is that actually uh, there's one thing that we all have in common, and it's actually the most important thing in the world, and in the most important thing in the world, we're all natural. We're all naturals. And it might not be apparent to you right now, in fact, you might think as we go, like, that doesn't seem natural at all. But in fact, it is natural for you to do the things of the kingdom of God. In fact, you were created by God to be a natural at the ways of the kingdom. And as we've gone through these parables one by one by one, what we've seen 12 weeks in a row is that as we read the parables of Jesus... He's trying to show us what the kingdom is like, what the ways of the kingdom are like. And for some of you, if, if you're like me at all, you might, man, that is unnatural for me. That is not the way I operate. That's not the way the world operates around me. This is unnatural. But what we'll see is that it's actually natural. And I'll explain why it seems unnatural when it's so natural. The parables teach us the ways of the kingdom, and it's been fun to look at them and be challenged by them. And if you haven't been challenged by them, you're either lying to yourself or you've been falling asleep. They press in on us and they, they push us towards something greater and better than, than, when, than we're used to. So I just want to recap the parables that we've been through. Um, if you haven't been with us and you want to go back, you can listen to these online and, and get challenged all the more. There was the parable of the talents, the parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the rich fool, the parable of the sower, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the parable of the unforgiving servant, the parable of the unworthy servant, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, the parable of the wicked tenants, and the parable of the great banquet feast. And then finally last week we looked at the parable of the ten virgins. 
And in these parables, what we see is that they're ultimately about the kingdom of God, or we, we sometimes see it called the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus will say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this. And there's always, in each of the parables, either implicitly or explicitly, three sort of groups of people. There is the king who reigns the kingdom, and that's always God. And then there's those loyal subjects, that's God's people. But both God's, God and God's people regularly come into contact with a third group of people, and these individuals are clearly not citizens of the kingdom. And this third group, these are people who are not God's people. And the general themes that emerge over and over again as Jesus teaches us in the parables are one, the graciousness of God, the graciousness of the king. Two, the demands of discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, living in the ways of the kingdom. It's not easy. And three, the dangers of disobedience. What happens if you don't live according to the kingdom, if you don't find yourself amongst the people of God? So there's warnings and danger. And before we sort of get overwhelmed, because I'm about to overwhelm you, (laughs) but before we do, and we're thinking about these ways of kingdom living, and maybe some of the ways of the parables are coming back to your mind, the ways of the kingdom might at first, like I said, feel unnatural. Like they're so hard to do. So unnatural. Whereas the ways of the world or the ways of disobedience, they seem easy which we usually equate with natural. But let's take a look at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he goes into the Passion Week, which we see him going to the cross and dying and then ultimately rising from the grave three days later. Before that happens, this is one of the last things that he teaches his disciples. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 25. So if you're not there yet, Get there now, and we're going to be starting in verse 31. Oh, sorry, what did I say, Mark? Matthew. Somebody's paying attention, thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and read this from Jesus. When the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself here, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations, and He will separate people one from another as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom of prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, Jesus blows up this notion that he's just a good guy. You can't just come to Jesus and think, oh, he was just a really nice guy that taught nice things. He taught very challenging things. He said very challenging things. This is one of the very challenging things that Jesus says. I just want to make a few comments about this text. The first is that there's a time of judgment. That's clear. Last week we talked about this idea that Jesus is actually coming again. He's not just a historical figure, but he is alive He is currently with God in heaven, and he says, I'm coming back to you a second time, but this time as a judge. And so we get this picture of him coming back as a judge. And when you think about this judgment, you think of coming before Jesus, what emotion does it elicit in you? Does it elicit fear? Confusion, maybe? Is it somehow reassuring? Does it make sort of common sense that, yeah, judgment is necessary? To think about that. C.S. Lewis writes this in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're not familiar, it's a, it's a book series. Uh, it's a fictional book series, but it's based upon biblical truth. And in, in the book, The Last Battle, Aslan, who is the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's this majestic lion who is the rightful king of Narnia, He is the picture we have here. And C.S. Lewis writes this. As they came up to Aslan, one of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression on their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. Except that, on the face of the talking beasts, think about the goats in our story, The fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You can see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were now just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to the right, that's Aslan's left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them, but the others who looked in the face of Aslan and loved him, though some of them were very frightened at the same time, and all these things came in at the door, sorry, and all these, that's these people who loved Aslan, came in at the door on Aslan's right. They were some odd specimen among them, some of them even who had shot the horses. But we had no time to wonder about that sort of thing, why some got in and others didn't. 
Anyway, that was no business of ours. For a great joy put everything else out of our heads. So we have here in this parable the same picture of everyone coming up before Jesus. And he has some to the left. And he says to some, come to my right. Right side being the place of honor. And he calls these sheep and goats, Jesus does in chapter 25. And I think we can say that they're synonymous with the antagonists and the protagonists that we've seen throughout the parables. The antagonists and the protagonists are the sheep and the goats. Or the right way to say that is the goats and the sheep. And the parables are not just nice stories or just warning tales. But they beg us to ask this question. Which are we in the story? Are we the protagonist that does things the way God designed his world to work? Or are we the antagonist that do things opposite to the way God wants it? And we've been challenged with that. Who are we in this final picture of judgment that Jesus talks about? So the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the list of antagonists, the goats that we've seen throughout the parables. I want to review that with you and talk about that together so that we might sort of remember what it is that we're talking about. What makes someone an antagonist in the kingdom of God? And so we had the parable of the talents. This was a long time ago, but maybe you can think back. The parable of the talents in which the question is asked, what will you do with what God has given you? And so in this parable, the foolish servant is the goat because he refused to take risks with the house money that God had given him, with the resources God had given him. He refused to take risks, and he ends up doing nothing with it. No multiplication of what had been entrusted to him. Yes, he doesn't lose any money, but in a sense, he has no faith. He trusts not in who his master is, the master who is not wanting anything. You cannot lose what is not yours. And so he becomes the foolish servant for not knowing who the master is and underestimating the abundance of the master's resources and taking no risks and not trusting God. Now in the parable of the good Samaritan, it's the Jewish priest and the Levite who are the goats. For they convince themselves that this half-dead man on the side of the road is not their problem. They don't know his identity because it's unknowable. He's unconscious. They don't know. And therefore, they convince themselves that he is not their neighbor. And therefore, they have no responsibility to him. He's not their problem. They become this picture of exclusivity, this lack of compassion loving themselves above God and all God's people and using the world's ethic of compassion only when it's reciprocated rather than the kingdom ethic of unconditional neighborly compassion. Then we had the prodigal son. And in the prodigal son, it's the older brother who's the goat. He gets caught up in the works of the law and missing out on the joy of celebration which comes when people experience reconciliation 
by the gracious God. And so it's his unwillingness to allow grace to rule his world that keeps him from the goodness of God and the family of God. Then we have the rich fool. And the rich fool is the goat of the story. And he mismanages God's miracle. God gives him this great harvest and he mismanages the miracle. He attempts to use the miracle to harbor long-term security and pleasure for himself. He accumulates wealth and luxury for the enjoyment of life rather than allowing the overflow of his good fortune to bless the entire community around him. His treasures are only temporal and earthly rather than transcendent and heavenly. Then there was the parable of the sower. We have several combinations of seed and soil that sort of become types of faith, types of faith that don't grow to maturity, and these combinations are the goats. There's the seed and the path, which represents non-faith that fails to penetrate any of the existing ground or worldview. It's when the message of Jesus fails to penetrate any part of us, and it's quickly snatched away by the enemy. Then there's the seed on the rocky ground. This is shallow faith that lacks roots. This is easy believism, and it has no lasting power. And it grows up quickly at first, but is scorched by the heat. And then finally there is the seed and the thorns. This is faith that survives, but it produces no fruit. It doesn't die, but it doesn't produce anything. And so we learn here that in the kingdom of God, the goats are those that never grow fully to maturity and never produce other disciples. And even if they sort of survive, they're choked out. They see no goodness come from them. Then there's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is the goat in this parable. He sees himself and he prays as the superior one, as the righteous one, and he looks down at the tax collector. He's dedicated to his religion and his religiosity about doing the things of his religion. And he does all the right things, yet he fails to see that it's by grace and mercy that one gets right with God. Not by works of the law, not by religion. And so it's his hubris that makes him believe that God's program couldn't move forward without his contribution. And his prideful heart keeps him from the kingdom of grace. Then we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the unforgiving servant is, of course, the goat. He does not extend the same forgiveness to his fellow co-worker that his master has granted to him. And so he has been let off the hook. He has received grace. He has been let out of a loan, yet he will not let those underneath him out of their debt. Then there was the parable of the unworthy servant. There's no real goat in this story except for this hypothetical person who doesn't, who doesn't think himself to be different than God the Father. The hypothetical person that thinks just because he's done the work of God, he deserves something special from God. He forgets that God's kingdom is a hierarchy. God is the master. We are the servant. We simply do our duty 
and were lucky to be employed by God. Then there's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The grumbling day laborers are the goats. These are those that were hired at the beginning of the day that work the longest, and they are angry at the master because the master gives gifts to all the laborers, even those who only worked for an hour at the end of the day. Everyone gets the same reward, and they're angry about that because they think that their employment is somehow due to them, that they're entitled to get something better because they've worked harder. That's not how the kingdom of God works. God gives good gifts. He doesn't have to give any gifts. And so thankfulness is the way of the kingdom. Never begrudging. Then there's the parable of the wicked tenants. The tenants in the vineyard are the goats wanting to have all the fruits that they've worked for, not wanting to give homage, anything back to the landowner. Instead of accepting the great gift, which is, is to rent and work the land, they go ahead and they kill the servants and eventually the son of the landowner. They refuse to respect the landowner and refuse to respect the son that he sends. Instead, they kill him. It's a clear warning to those who see Jesus, who see him as God the Son, but refused to honor him and respect him as such because he is the Son in the kingdom of God. This is the unforgivable sin we talked about. The parable of the great banquet, those who make lame excuses and not come to the great banquet, those are the goats. They think that their own agendas are more important than the invitation that they've been given. They fail to recognize the glory, the value of being invited into the presence of God. And then finally, we have the parable of the ten virgins. The foolish virgins, the five virgins who don't prepare, they are the goats. They're not ready for the arrival of the bridegroom. Something that they knew was coming, something that they were told would happen at any moment, but they were foolish in their thinking because they thought, I'll just make a last-minute adjustment if I need to, if I don't have enough, if I'm not prepared, and they find out that that is a bad idea, and they miss out on the wedding feast. These goats show us that being ready for Jesus' return is not something that we can take lightly. And so if these are the goats... Men and women who play it safe avoid potentially dead bodies to keep their jobs, do everything their parents ask them to do in, order, in hopes to get good favor, that make sensible business decisions and build bigger barns to store excess profit, that show only periodic glimpses of spiritual growth, but some growth, that follow the Bible to the T, that expect their peers to pay them back alone, that want to work for something more than just duty, that want to get compensation relative to the effort that they put in, that make lame excuses, that can be a little bit lazy or unprepared. If these are the goats, who am I? I feel kind of like a goat. Am I a goat too? Those things seem pretty natural to me. So as we've studied these 
parables as we've considered the truths that Jesus is trying to reveal to us, when we remember them now, we see that this calling to the kingdom of God, this calling to be sheep, this calling to be these protagonists that we'll look at in a second, this is a high calling. We know it's a high calling because we can relate to the goats. You probably wonder, is this even attainable? So now for the good news. <laughs> it is attainable. Look again with me at verse 34 in Matthew chapter 25. It says this. After he separated the sheep from the goats, he says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. The kingdom of God, as Jesus describes it in the parables, yes, it's a lofty, sometimes overwhelming vision cast for us of what God wants for us. But see these words. It is a kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the cosmos. Which means what? You were made for this. You were made for the kingdom of God. This is not unnatural. It's perfectly natural. It's what you were created for. For this kingdom you were made. The kingdom that Jesus talks about. And if you were made for this kingdom, then it means that the things of the kingdom can become natural to us, even if they don't seem so at this moment. Dave, are you telling me you might ask. Are you telling me that it's natural to have compassion and show lavish aid to all people, seeing all people as your neighbors like the Good Samaritan? Yes. That's natural. You're telling me it's natural to be faithful in my investment and to multiply the resources God has given me like the two wise servants in the parable of the talents? Yeah. That is natural. You're telling me it's natural to return to God no matter how unworthy I feel, how badly I've messed up, like the prodigal? Yeah, it's very natural. You're telling me that it's natural to care more about the treasures of heaven, these grace-based relationships. Those are more important. I can care more about those than earthly things and possessions and wealth and luxury and comfort. You see, it's natural to not be like the rich fool? Yes, it's natural. It's natural to have the kind of faith that perseveres and inevitably multiplies itself and makes other disciples and spreads the good news of Jesus like scattering seeds, as we see in the parable of the sower. You're telling me that's natural? Yeah, it's totally natural. And it's natural to pray true prayers of repentance and acknowledge our sinfulness before a holy God and ask for His forgiveness like the tax collector does in the temple? Yes. Natural. And it's natural to give freely and genuinely with no limitations to forgive fully in response to the overflow of God's grace and forgiveness in our lives? Yeah, that's natural. Is it natural to see God not as our equal, 
but as our Lord and our Master, and therefore to do His work out of duty and obedience, not out of some sense of compensation. Yeah, that's natural. But is it also natural to respond with unqualified gratitude to the salvation that God gives everyone, even people that waste their whole lives and chase everything for themselves and at the last minute come back to God? To be celebrating that, to be happy for them, that's natural? Yeah. Is it natural to see Jesus as the Son of God and to respect Him, to pay homage to Him? Yes, natural. Is it natural to say yes and to mean yes when you get invited by God to do something? When you get invited into His presence to not make excuses, to not say I'll do it later? That's natural too? Yeah. And is it natural to personally prepare to take your own spiritual readiness into your own hands and prepare for the coming of the Lord and to be ready at any moment for His return. You're telling me that's natural. Yes. That is what you were created by God to do. Therefore, it is natural. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's natural to be just like these protagonists in the parables of Jesus. Wait. Doesn't seem that way to me. Doesn't seem that way to me. Here's why it doesn't seem that way to you. Because you're seeing nobody living like this. And it's probably been a long time since you've lived like this. And so you've convinced yourself that it's not natural. And that no one can do it. And it's too lofty a calling. And it's just some ideal that this Jesus character throws out there. No one can do that. That's not true. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that you can't live for the kingdom, right now. It only seems unnatural because nobody's doing it. But just because nobody's doing it doesn't mean it's not natural. Don't believe that lie. And what we see again and again and again in the parables is that Jesus picks as his heroes, as the star of his show, people who you would never think about putting as the protagonists. Tax collectors, Women of ill repute. Sinners. Lepers. Again and again and again. It's people that you wouldn't expect that become the heroes of Jesus' story. The outcasts of society. The lowest rung. And it's always the elite. The wealthy. The religious leaders who become the antagonists. And why does Jesus do that? Because He is trying to prove the point that it does not take anything else besides being a human being to live in the kingdom ways. Nothing else. You don't have to have any special title, any special role, any special wealth. You just simply need to be a human being to live according to the kingdom. Because it's natural. It takes no special training. 
It's natural. Anybody can be the hero. Anybody can be in the kingdom of God. And just because it's rare doesn't mean that it's unnatural. I want to show you why I think it's more natural than you could ever imagine living in the ways of the kingdom. So how natural is it? How natural is it? Turn with me back to chapter 25, and let's look at verse 34, and I want to show you something. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You were made for this. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will turn to God, and they will say to him, Lord, see the confusion in their face. Lord, when did I see you hungry? When did I feed you? When were you thirsty, and I gave you something to drink? When did I see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did you need clothes and I clothed you? When, when, when did we do this? When were you sick? When were you in prison and I went and visited you? They're so confused. Why are they so confused? Because they're unaware of the great things that they're doing. They're completely unaware of the goodness with which they're living. They're unaware of the kingdom lives that they're living. And why are they unaware? Because it's natural. Because they've been changed by the power of God in their life. And they're just living as they just see naturally to live. Of course if I see someone by the side of the road, I'm going to help them. Of course if I have a brother in prison, I'll go visit him. Of course if they're sick, I'll stay and I'll help them. And again and again and again, you see this, that the true people of God are unaware that they're doing great things. Because it's natural to them. Think about the thing that is most natural to you. Are you aware that you're doing it? It's just who you are. It's like breathing. You don't think about breathing. I'm not thinking about, okay, now I need to take another breath and another, or else I'm going to pass out. It's natural. The things that are so natural for me. Swinging a golf club. Shooting a basketball. I don't think about it. And it's almost weird for me when someone says, how do you do that? Because it's natural to me. They're so unaware. And again and again, and we saw this in the parables, and remember back to Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is talking to the people, and they say to him, Father, we did, or Jesus, we did this in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We talked about this last week. We did mighty miracles. We healed people in your name. And Jesus says, yet at the end of the day, you'll come to me, and I say, I do not know you. Why? Because these people thought about all the good things that they were doing. They were so aware of them. They were striving after them, thinking that that was what got them into the kingdom, not realizing that what gets you into the kingdom is actually being so unaware because it's so a part of who you are. It's so natural. Living in the ways of Jesus, living in the parables. This is natural, and it should become natural. 
to the point where we get to the end of it and we don't even remember all the good things that we did. I, can't even, I, didn't, I couldn't believe that. I didn't know that my kind word to this person meant this. There was a story I recently heard about a British man who, at the very beginning, before World War II started and the, the Nazis were persecuting the Jews, he saved hundreds and hundreds of young women and children Jewish women and children, and found them safe passage back to England. And he went on with his life, and he'd almost forgotten what he'd done. And then they threw him a big party 50 years later. And he didn't tell him what the party was for, and he's sitting in the front row. And everybody else in the room are people that he had helped to save. And then they told him, if you've been helped by this man, would you stand up? And everybody stood up, and he has a look on his face. He can't believe it. He just thought he was doing what he needed to do. And he changed so many lives. Because it was natural, of course. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When we seek first the kingdom of God, the presence of God, He actually changes us from the inside out, and we become what we were always meant to be. In a sense, it's a new creation, but really, it's what we were always meant to be. We were made for the kingdom And the kingdom was made for us before the foundation of the earth. And sin has marred that in us. It has tangled us up. And it gets in our way from living naturally. But when we see Jesus Christ, and He starts the process for us by dying the death we should have died and taking the wrath of God upon Himself, He begins the process, if we accept that, of untangling all that was wrong and making natural again what was always meant to be natural. And as we grow in Christ, and we're freed to be who we were meant to be, we don't even think about living in the kingdom ways because it's just so natural to us. It's not tiring because we're not striving after it. We're not trying to do something we weren't made to do. We're breathing because we were made for this kingdom. The kingdom of God. And Jesus was made to be our king. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us the parables. First of all, that you sent your son Jesus into the world and that he's spoken these parables to us to tell us what kingdom living looks like what true compassion looks like, what true joy looks like, what true forgiveness looks like, what true repentance looks like. Thank You for giving us these pictures, Lord, and we pray that You'd continue to stir in us this desire to become everything that we were always meant to be. That we would make what seems perhaps unnatural now natural again because it's Your design. 
that you've created us for this kingdom before the foundation of the world. This is what you want us to be, kingdom people living in the ways that Jesus taught us. For your glory, God, may it be so. Amen.